Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This is a crowd podcast. My name is uh, Sergeant Menes. I'll be the convoy commander for today. Sergeant Fox will be the assistant patrol leader. The night before I left for Iraq, I put my two daughters, who at the time were four and seven, to bed. Go to Sergeant Menes, myself. My driver will be Lance Corporal Sandy Serros. The gunner will be Rios. Doc Gaten will be in the back. Corporal Gonzalez, the radio man's in the back as well. Staff Sergeant Wooderick yep. and Epstein. Yep. All right. Now, gold three, Sergeant Mavalot. As absurd as it sounds, up until that moment, I hadn't given much thought about my trip to Iraq. I was simply too busy. There was new equipment to buy, classes with the Marine Corps I had to take. I even had to get new life insurance because there was an exclusion with the policy I had if you died in a war zone. All right, our route today, Sergeant Fox is gonna bring us on our route. All right, my name is Sergeant Fox. I'll be the APL slash navigator for today. Um, use the aid of my strip map right here. But it was only at that moment, lying next to my youngest daughter as she drifted off to sleep, that it struck me. I was going to war. And then I thought, if something were to happen to me, if I didn't come home, my daughter wouldn't remember me. She was too young. There'd be pictures of us, and people would tell her stories, but in all likelihood, she'd have no memories of her own. She'd almost certainly forget me. That realization at that moment shook me. And I remember thinking how many Marines or soldiers have had this very same thought as they left for war, and how many of them didn't come home. All right, ROE is hostile intent, hostile action. Positive idea, so make sure you have all those three before you actually engage. For your good dismounts, it'll be up to the VCs if he wants you to even dismount. 48 hours later, I found myself standing at Al-Assad Air Base, about to convoy out to Haditha. And I wondered if I was being fair, if I had any right to seek the truth in Haditha. Frank and his Marines had been hit by an IED. They'd taken fire. They'd lost one of their own. Who was I to judge how they responded, how they behaved in war? What the hell did I know about war? All right, one more thing. The challenge and pass for today is uh, help these a challenge, pass the sentence, and the running is falsehood. All right, so no questions. That concludes my breathing. My name is Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest, most expensive criminal investigation in U.S. military history, Murder in House 2. Episode 8, The 9mm Shell Case. For years, the defense of Staff Sergeant Frank Wooderich was a bit like the blind leading the blind. Dozens of depositions had been taken, 
Hundreds of hours had been spent poring over thousands of pages of discovery. And yet, we were no closer to the truth. Part of the problem was that each Marine under investigation gave conflicting and largely self-serving accounts of what happened. But by far, the biggest impediment in the case was Frank's unreliable memory. It's all I can do is tell or say, like, you know, the things that I know and and say the things that I don't know. And I'm not going to make things up. You know, I don't know. I'm just, it's extremely frustrating that I'm just really confused about what happened that day to this day. No matter how many times we asked, no matter what we said or did, Frank simply could not remember what happened in House 2. Or at least, that's what he told us. Have you always been confused about what happened that day? Or has it gotten worse? Well, it's it's much worse now. And it's, and it's much worse now because of everything that I read and hear from everyone else, the testimony and everything else. And so, you know, my lawyers or, and, and whoever else that, that has questions and lots of times it's, you know, well, could this be possible or could that be possible? And I don't know. I mean, I just, I don't know how to answer, you know, I guess so. Do you get angry over it? Yes, I, I get, well, I get frustrated. I wouldn't say angry. I don't get pissed off, but I get frustrated. It's very frustrating. I understand that, you know, there's certain things that just, you know, everyone wants to know, needs to know in order to help me out or whatever the case may be. But, you know, it's frustrating to me that I, that I can't provide the answers to help myself out. We were now perilously close to Frank's court-martial, only a few weeks away. And he was still unable to provide a coherent answer to Stephen Tatum's charge that he was the primary shooter in House 2. Everything is just so jumbled up that I cannot remember what happened. And therefore, I cannot, I can't even defend myself. I don't know what the fuck happened. I think a walkthrough would be helpful, actually. I mean, it's one thing to look at a diagram. It's another thing to actually walk the ground, see the distances. Neil Puckett. We had holes we needed to fill, and we thought that if if Frank were there, that finally, at long last, would trigger memories, visual memories that he had, those, those visual cues. If that doesn't do it, nothing will. No, it looks quite the same. Looks the same, Frank? Yes. And so, with the trial only weeks away, Frank's legal team, Neil, Haytham, and Colby, made one last-ditch attempt to jog Frank's memory by sending him and me to Haditha. Where's the door that he hit? Right there, facing us? I'm going to have to go to the house to see. Okay. All right. I I remember entering. All right. Just straight in. I don't even see a door. Damn, we need to bring the fucking jury here, man. That's what we need to do. I don't think Meeks would entertain that request. The three of us walked Route Chestnut, stood at the site of the IED blast, went into houses one and two. And like I told Frank, I think he tells a shitty story. How so? How many times has he told us this? I, I just, I couldn't visualize it right. I had it wrong. 
Mendoza shoots a person through the door. I walk in, I see someone right in this doorway, I fire, bam, bam, two shots. Person dead right here on the ground. We stack along this wall initially. Peek around the corner, and there's a washroom. Finally, Frank Wooderich was back inside house two. Your time, Frank. I get my grenade prepped. I think Mendoza is already going through the house. I throw a grenade in. Yell frag out? Yeah, yell frag out, but I'm trying to think if we didn't we didn't initially double frag that room. We only fragged it a second time because the first one didn't go off. So we waited. Obviously, once we yelled frag out, I think we ran outside. The grenade didn't go off. We came back in, refragged it. Maybe that's when Mendoza was going through that. After the second time, we came back in to frag that room. He wasn't aware that we were fragging this room, and he had already started going through to clear the house. So once he heard frag out, he needed to hurry up, and I think he just ran in here and hid. We were already Do you outside. remember him hiding here, or is it just I do. I actually okay. do remember him hiding over there. Did you get that? Because it's incredibly important. Let's go over it again. Walking me through house two, Frank remembered throwing a fragmentary grenade into a washroom that was just off the kitchen. He yelled, frag out, and the entire fire team exited the house. But the grenade didn't go off. So Frank had to enter the home again and frag the washroom a second time. Being in house two for the first time in years, Frank now remembered Mendoza running past him, down the hallway, on this second entry, only to be surprised when Frank again yelled, frag out. Suddenly, Mendoza's testimony made sense. That's why he walked down the hallway alone. That's why he opened the door to the back bedroom. That's why he saw the women and children alive and then close the door. He thought the Marines were clearing the house, not refragging the washroom a second time. But it wasn't just Mendoza's actions I suddenly understood. It was Frank's as well. Your time, Frank. I get my grenade prepped. I think Mendoza is already going through the house. I throw a grenade in. You don't throw again? Yeah, yell frag out, but I'm trying to think if we didn't we didn't initially double frag that room. We only fragged it a second time because the first one didn't go off. Frank remembered throwing two fragmentary grenades into the washroom. The first one didn't go off, so he threw the second. But here's the thing: the washroom was empty. No one was in it. Why would Frank throw two fragmentary grenades into an empty room if he was on a murderous rampage. He wouldn't. No one would. The only reason he threw those grenades was because he thought there was a threat inside. Someone with a weapon. Fragging the empty washroom was the first concrete evidence I had for Frank's state of mind. He really thought he was chasing an insurgent, even if there never was one, even if he was chasing a ghost. But how do you explain Mike Maloney's blood spatter analysis of the back bedroom? Methodical shots, sighted targets, 
no fog of war. There was maybe 10 feet from the empty washroom to the back bedroom. Just 10 feet. Somehow, in those 10 feet, the Marines under Frank's command went from thinking they were engaging an insurgent to knowingly shooting women and children. Whatever went wrong in House 2 happened in those 10 feet. One is the door and then one's the in between the wall and the door, like the distance. Hey guys, can we just stop doing everything for one second? We gotta, we gotta move, man. We gotta I know, I know, I know, but we've got... We've got like 15 minutes and we've gotta be gone. I know, but Frank is going through the thing. Hey, we don't have much time left. Okay. I'm trying to remember what happened. This is Michael, and I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy I don't have the time to cook, but I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com slash murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. This is the story of Whitney Houston, of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. That feeling. That feeling. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. For years, Frank Witterich denied killing anyone in House 2. For years, he also claimed he couldn't remember what happened in that home. Now, standing in the very room where the government said he murdered five children and their mother, I pressed Frank, one last time, to finally remember what happened in this bedroom. You don't want I remember coming into this room. Ever. Not until later that day. Right. Is that? Yeah. You engineer. Correct. Um, you sure of that? Positive. Who did? I just still remember Mendoza. I'm sorry, what? I just still remember Mendoza. Why do you remember Mendoza? I remember when we exited the house, Mendoza being excited that he got to like shoot people or something like that, and he made a statement about if there was anyone else he could shoot or anyone else he could kill. Um, and I remember everyone sort of like, I guess congratulating him on not being a pussy, I guess, and, and I don't know, not hiding in the corner and actually shooting and firing his weapon. Is there anyone else I can kill? Congratulating him on not being a pussy. I stood there, a foot, maybe two, from where the blood-soaked bed had been, and genuinely recoiled at these words. I remember thinking, who the hell says something like that, even in war? Then, as we stood in the exact spot 
where Mike Maloney said the second shooter fired his weapon. I asked Frank about the rest of his Marines. I don't know. Sure. I don't remember. I think Sherrod came into the house after we had cleared it. I don't think he fired in here. He may have. Um, but if he did, it was before I remember after, after we had left the house. Wait, what? I think Sherrod came into the house after we had cleared it. I don't think he fired in here. He may have. Um, but if he did, it was before I remember after, after we had left the house. That was it. Four sentences. Four sentences about a Marine none of us ever thought to ask about. Four sentences that radically changed everything we thought we knew about the case and House 2. We're on schedule to start trial within a matter of a week or so. Neil Puckett. And we got mailed back from you the footage of the interviews and the walkthrough of the houses. And we saw the part where Frank is talking about Sherrod and remember seeing Sherrod in the house. Well, this was the the first time that anybody had said, much less our client, that Sherrod was in that house because Sherrod said he wasn't in the house. Lance Corporal Justin Sherrod was the gunner in the lead Humvee of the convoy. Just after the incident, Sherrod told the NCIS that when he saw Frank and the rest of the fire team run towards House 1, he dismounted his 240 Golf, a jackhammer of a weapon, and ran to join them. And even though none of the other Marines placed him there, Sherrod said he was present when they entered House 2. Sherrod was never charged with any of the deaths in Houses 1 or 2. And because of that, Frank's legal team never factored him into their narrative. Instead, they built Frank's defense around the story they inherited from the prosecution. A story, it turns out, that blinded them to the truth. We're looking back through through the discovery, and, and, and someone notices and, and highlights for the first time the mention, in both in House 1 and House 2, of the existence in, in separate photographs of a 9mm shell casing. That fact had been overlooked by prosecutors. It had been overlooked by us because Sherrod was never charged with any crimes in House 1 and 2. We were focused on evidence that would help our client defend our client. And it never occurred to us to pick out on a page, on, on you know, in, in 10,000, 12,000 pages, this, this mention of a 9mm shell casing, except that now that Frank remembered Sherrod being in the house, so the videotape. The videotape, right. Uh, cued us to, to, to looking, looking back. And, and sure enough, there's a photograph of a 9 millimeter shell casing on the ground in, in the back bedroom in House 2, and there's one in the killing room in House 1. That's the first time we have, no kidding, forensic physical evidence that can link a specific Marine to a specific shooting time and place. It's impossible to overstate just how transformative the discovery of that 9mm shell casing was. Because here's the thing. There was only one Marine that day who had a 9mm pistol. Just one. Justin Sherritt. 
Now, I think it's important to stop and clearly restate what Frank told me in House 2. He still remembered Mendoza going into the bedroom. And he remembered Mendoza being excited about shooting his weapon and asking if there was anyone else he could kill. And while he didn't remember where Tatum was, he did remember Sherritt going into the bedroom only after it had been cleared. Frank was not saying Sherritt was the primary shooter. In his mind, that was still Mendoza. But he was saying, for the very first time, that Justin Sherritt had been in that bedroom. Which, of course, begged the question, why did it take so long for Frank to tell us the truth? When he says, I can't remember, that's not the truth. It's absolutely not the truth that he, that he couldn't remember. He, 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 he could remember, but I believe that he was protecting his Marines, even from his own attorneys, for fear that we might use that against them as well. After we got back from Iraq, Colby, Haytham, Neil, and I went out to dinner and tried to make sense of what I filmed in Iraq and what Neil and Haytham discovered hidden in the NCIS documents. But before we could absorb the impact of these revelations, we were hit with yet another development. Just days after we returned home, the United States government dismissed all of Stephen Tatum's charges including the deaths of two of the children in House 2, and granted him immunity. I know I keep saying this, but there are no words to tell you how I felt about the dismissal of Tatum's charges. I've tried to put something down here, something that would convey the anger, the disgust, the futility. I don't know. The whole thing. I mean, Stephen Tatum admitted to having positive identification of the children in the back bedroom in House 2 and shooting them anyway. And based on Mike Maloney's forensic reconstruction, the government charged Tatum with the murder of two of those children, Noor Salim Rasif, who was 13 years old, and Zainab Yunus Salim, who was five. Did their lives not matter? There was not even any jury selection. The prosecutor decided at that moment to take Tatum out of the ballgame, not, not have him answer for anything he did that day, despite the fact that they had him on paper admitting that he intentionally killed a small child who posed no threat to him. He was going to get a walk so long as he would affirmatively put Frank Woodridge in that room. I can just remember saying, well, you know, this is a game changer now. Now they're, you know, now they're really playing hardball. They're putting all of their cards on Tatum against Woodridge. And Tatum is going to be the guy that has Frank being the murderer, the butcher, in uh, the back bedroom house, too. All of this happened practically at the same moment. The discovery of the 9mm shell casings in houses 1 and 2. The revelation that Sherritt had gone into the back bedroom of house 2 after it had been cleared. And the government's decision to dismiss Tatum's charges and grant him immunity. We were at endgame. Everyone understood that. Everyone knew it was time to confront Frank, to finally, unequivocally demand he tell us the truth. As Neil said to me when we left the restaurant that night, this is Frank Wooderich's come-to-Jesus moment. Hey, 
Frank, come on in and sit down. If there was a reason why you were not giving us all the information that's in your memory, because you didn't want to burn anybody else, or you didn't want to be disloyal to any of your other Marines, or you didn't want to be a rat or be the guy who, you know, said, well, you know, it's not, not my fault, it's their fault, or, or anything like that, whatever any motivations might have been, we're now at the point of no return where we can't afford to not know what you know. Because we've got to make some very critical decisions that could determine your fate. We're convinced that you know what happened. Right. Put it that way. He's trying to sugarcoat it, Steph Shark. I know you know what happened. Okay? So let's cut the bullshit. You sat in my office one day and you, you said you didn't shoot in the back bedroom. Yes, sir. Okay? I know you know what happened. Whatever the reason, you can... I, I don't give a shit. You want to keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. Everybody's turned on you. Nobody gives a shit about you. We're the only people that give a shit about you. Now let me give you an example of what we're talking about, okay? While you guys were on your site visit in Iraq, uh, or on your way back actually, right. we got sent to us videotape uh, of you walking through the house and you talking, and you remember doing that with Epstein? Yes. Okay. And I saw you think and think and think. The, the camera was close up, and it was obviously you were searching your brain. And the question was, you know, where was Sherrod? I don't know. Sherrod? I don't remember. I think Sherrod came into the house after we had cleared it. I don't think he fired in here. He may have. Um, but if he did, it was before I remember after, after we had left the house. Or maybe five minutes of taping later, you're out in the hallway, and you kind of looked in a room or were checking a room or something, and you came back out, and right on camera, I mean, I can, I can show it to you. You have like a revelation, like something came back to you. Mm, yeah, Tatum says he's in this room when he hears the fire and goes in support. Mm -hmm. I think it was Sherrod. He was Sherrod? That Sherrod was in here? I think Sherrod went in there and fired while Tatum was in there. And there's the wall. I don't know why I think that. I don't know why I just thought that. <clears throat> but I don't think he had his 240. 60. Probably shot the lock with the people. Yeah. Uh, I thought he had his 240 with him. I think he went in there with his nine. Unbeknownst to you, back here, we're re-looking through Sherrod's old statements, re-looking through Tatum's old statements, and looking at the physical evidence. And by God, there's in an NCIS report evidence that there's a nine millimeter shell casing that appears in a photograph in the bedroom in house one and in the bedroom in house two. Now, who's the only Marine that day who had a nine millimeter? Sure. Yeah. And we think that there's no way that you don't know that Sherrod fucking went in there and killed people. <clears throat> Am I wrong about that? Um, no, I remember Sherrod being in house two. Um, when, when you were in house two also, right? You were in there with him. I still <clears throat> remember Sheriff showing up once we were outside of house two. Um, after that, I think he went in there. I don't remember with who or anyone, but this was after the shooting was done there. But he went in there, shot some more, came back out. Um, okay, that fits the evidence too. 
And he went back in the house. One also? Okay. Okay. But that he was dead checks. Yes, sir. That's what you think he did? Yes, sir. Okay. That's why those people are shot in the fucking heads. Is that what it is? It was... He didn't, I don't even, he didn't, he didn't go in with, with the four of us. He went in after we were done with house two and on our way back. Did you lose control of these guys that day? Were they acting on their own or? Sherritt was only a Lance Corporal. Did he just decide on his own without checking with you to go back in there? Or did he clear it with you? He cleared it with me. I I don't remember him just going in on his own. Did he empty a magazine? I don't think completely, but it could have been close. More than one shot? Yes, sir. There was only one person who had a 9mm pistol. Colby. There was only one of that entire group, and that was Sherritt. The prosecution made some gut assumptions at the beginning, and once they decided who it was that they were going to go after, they're going to take whatever means possible to prosecute Staff Sergeant Frank Woodridge. They're going to get him no matter what. I mean, look what they did. They granted immunity to all these other people and just went after Staff Sergeant Woodridge. And it made no sense. You know, I, I don't I don't really give a shit about any of these guys anymore. And hate them. I mean, fuck Sherritt, fuck his lawyer, fuck Tatum, fuck everybody. If we start making it like, look, look, look it's a huge conspiracy with all of them. You no, know we're not saying a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. All I'm saying is everybody's running for their own deal. Sherritt went in there shooting. Did he kill them all? I don't know. Were some of them wounded? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't really care. I mean, if Sherritt looks bad, then so be it. No, I, I, not, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not trying to protect the, the reputation. No, I, I think it's fucking disgusting that they're doing dead checks on little kids anyway, whether they're dead or not. I mean, he, clearly, they were kids. In the next episode, a confession. I've been withholding evidence from you. There was a survivor in the back bedroom of House 2. Would you please state your full name? Then uh, this is your comment. This is a robotic comment. Safari Yunusan Rasid. Safari Yunusan If you want more murder in House 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard, as well as photographs and copies of original investigative documents. Just search for murder in House 2. This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and the Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniot, with additional editing by Ed Barteski Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls, and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulk Hart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, check out a Crowd Network original called Death of a Rockstar. Each episode is about the lives of Whitney Houston, Kurt Cobain, Amy Winehouse, Prince, and sadly, many more. Their stories are beautifully told in around 30 minutes each. Just search for Death of a Rockstar in your podcast app. There'll be a new episode of Murder in House 2 out Mondays. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.
Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomena slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Dr. Grande the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows.